Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego, Anibuju, Kwei Ninda Luizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, languages, traditions, laws, and governing practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And our nations are really diverse. We have different laws, legal systems, we have our own histories, but we share core values related to always protecting our collectives, whether they're our clans, our houses, villages, districts, and the important relationships we have with lands, waters, and all living things. One of the ways that we have sought to protect the health, safety, and well-being of our peoples is through these core values that are in our languages and our traditional Indigenous laws. First Nations in Canada and Native American governments in the United States have also used domestic human rights mechanisms as well as international human rights systems at the United Nations and the Inter-American Commission as tools to help hold states to account for ongoing human rights abuses. Within the context of our native sovereignty, representatives of our nations have been working at the international level for decades trying to advance human rights. Representatives of diverse Indigenous cultures, peoples, and nations from all different countries have worked collaboratively together to advance issues which are very similar between us, especially those of us who are in colonized territories. One of the outcomes of the decades of work of the United Nations is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, sometimes referred to as UNDRIP or UNDRIP, and it was passed by a majority of the member states in 2007. After having originally voted against UNDRIP, Canada is now poised to potentially pass legislation, Bill C-15, to start a process to ensure that its laws comply with the rights that are recognized, not granted, recognized in UNDRIP. And that is the reason for today's panel with really special guests and people that I have a significant amount of respect for, people that I have learned so much from. We have guests Honorable Murray Sinclair and of course Professor Brenda Gunn. The Honorable Murray Sinclair is Anishinaabeg, whose list of accomplishments is very long. He's worked in the capacity as a lawyer and a professor, associate chief judge at the Provincial Court of Manitoba, co-commissioner of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, senator, and now works at the law firm of Cochrane Saxburg. Professor Brenda Gunn is a Métis lawyer and professor at University of Manitoba Law, who is a well-known expert and speaker on international law and has done a significant amount of international human rights work, including her research, which promotes greater conformity between international laws protecting Indigenous rights and domestic laws. She worked at a community legal aid clinic in Guatemala on a case of genocide that was submitted to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. She provides technical assistance to the UN expert mechanism on the rights of indigenous peoples. And she wrote the handbook on understanding and implementing UNDRIP. So these are the people that you want to talk to if you want to get a better understanding about what is UNDRIP, what is Bill C-15 and what it could all mean. But just as a reminder, 
We're all lawyers here. And as I say on all of my other Warrior Life podcasts, this podcast is intended to be educational and it should never be misconstrued as legal advice. And with all of that out of the way, welcome to the Warrior Life podcast, Dr. Sinclair and Professor Gunn. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, before we get started, maybe each of you could introduce yourself in the way that you like to, according to your own customs. And, and we'll start with you, Murray. Bonjour. Uh, I have a traditional name of Mizanagizek, which means the one who speaks of pictures in the sky. <clears throat> There's a long story about that name, but... Uh, I'm proud to carry it. I use it whenever I can. And certainly when I'm talking with elders, I always use it. So thank you for having me as part of this podcast and for allowing me to be a part of a very important conversation. Well, thank you. It's a real honor that you're here. Professor Brenda Gunn, would you like to go next? <laughs> sure. Uh, just thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking with everyone from Treaty One Territory, the homeland of the Métis people, where my family comes from. And uh, yeah, just looking forward to the conversation today. Well, thank you both so much. I mean, I admire all of your work. And of course, when all of this conversation was coming around about potential legislation to implement or address UNDRIP here in Canada, I knew that I had to have two of you here because you both just have such a wealth of knowledge. And so, Brenda, I'd really like to start with you. Um, and, and keep in mind that some of our listeners or viewers haven't been following this. They're not online, you know, reading everything about UNDRIP or they, they might not even have heard about UNDRIP. Could you give us some background about how UNDRIP came to be, the central role that Indigenous peoples played, and maybe a little bit about some of the rights, the really important rights that are contained or recognized within UNDRIP. Sure, thanks for the question. And it is always a good reminder that not everyone eats, breathes, and sleeps the UN Declaration. So that what? starting at the beginning, <laughs> right? Who knew this? Not everyone oh my God. thinking about how to implement international law in Canada. Um, so I think it's important to remember that Indigenous peoples have for a long time gone to international arenas like the United Nations to try to seek assistance in addressing the challenges they're experiencing with various countries like Canada. In particular, some of the first issues that took Indigenous peoples um, to the United Nations were implementation of treaties as well as protecting lands. And so after decades of lobbying in 1977, we finally have some first movement. There is an NGO conference on discrimination against indigenous populations in the Americas, which leads to the draft declaration of principles for the defense of indigenous nations and peoples of the Western hemisphere. So the process to begin articulating what are the rights, the inherent rights of indigenous peoples, what should states recognize and protect begins in 1977. And then in the 80s and 90s, the UN starts working uh, more seriously and dedicated through the Working Group on Indigenous Populations. And that body has a mandate now to start elaborating a declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples. And so after that point, there's many different stages and bodies that go through and study and look at the UN declaration, but it all culminates in 2007, as you've mentioned, with the vote at the General Assembly. 
And the General Assembly is the main deliberative body of the United Nations. So kind of like the Parliament for Canada, it's kind of like the Parliament for the world. And you've noted that a majority of the states voted in favour. But I think it's really important to remember that even though it was only recognized countries that got a vote, Indigenous peoples were involved in the process at every stage. So it was Indigenous peoples that went to the UN and asked for an instrument recognizing their rights. And even when it was only the General Assembly and official states that could vote on the UN Declaration and have the conversations, Indigenous peoples were there, they were sitting outside the room, they were working with countries who would come out and say, this is one of the proposed changes, what do you think, is this acceptable? We're thinking about proposing this, what is your thoughts? And there were many states who knew they would not vote in favor of the declaration if Indigenous peoples did not consent and agree. So I think there's strong reasons to recognize that and accept that the rights that are articulated in the UN Declaration are those that Indigenous peoples hold to be important. And they're far-ranging. It's, it's hard to sort of summarize 46 articles, but they talk about equality and non-discrimination. So the idea is that Indigenous peoples are equal to all peoples of the world and should not be discriminated against for being Indigenous. There's recognition of Indigenous peoples' right to self-determination, which could include self-government and the right to Indigenous peoples' own institutions and legal systems, rights protecting life, integrity, and security, the rights to culture and religion and linguistic identity, rights to education, including mother tongue uh, education, regardless of where you live on and off reserve, um, a right for public information to accurately <clears throat> reflect Indigenous peoples' aspirations, a right to Indigenous media, and then of course the provisions that get more attention in the news is the right to participate in decision-making and free prior informed consent. There's provisions that talk about economic and social rights like employment and health, and there are provisions also related to lands, territories, and resources, as well as, of course, I think importantly, treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements. So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly important. It really deals with all aspects of life you know, social, economic, legal, political, language, cultural. And I think that's that's incredibly important for people to know if they haven't already looked at it. And it's a relatively short document. So people could go and, and read the articles and see what they say. Um, Murray, I'd like to move to you because you've your whole career has been around law from a, a variety of different perspectives, you know, from law practice, professor, a judge, a commissioner in public inquiries. I mean, you've worked in law from all of those different vantage points. And when you were chair of the TRC, several of your calls to action actually relate directly to UNDRIP. Some of them also include UNDRIP, but the first two that I, I'm wondering if you can speak to are calls number 43 and 44 because they call on the federal, provincial, territorial, municipal governments to fully adopt UNDRIP as the framework for reconciliation. Um, and then 44 is calling on Canada to develop a national action plan to achieve the goals of uh, UNDRIP. Can you share some of the reasoning why you thought it was important to include that in the Truth and Reconciliation Report on what happened in residential schools and why that's so important to advancing reconciliation? 
<clears throat> Thank you for the question. Um, and uh, in, incidentally, I've never had a chance to, but I want to commend Brenda for having done the handbook on the UN Declaration uh, without feeling compelled to draw pictures because it, it, <laughs> anytime that you invite the public to start looking at legal issues, their eyes start to glaze over and they start to find ways not to look at it. But this one, this handbook is actually very um, readable and, and I encourage and, and I've always encouraged people to take a look at it because it really does um, in a very forthright and straightforward way explain what the UN Declaration and its uh, 46 clauses are all about. And people, I think when they realize that it's uh, understandable uh, and that they can understand it, uh, are more easily inclined to pick it up. And looking at the UN Declaration, <clears throat> the one thing that uh, you're immediately struck with, particularly those who have worked in the area of uh, uh, colonial oppression and uh, and white supremacy in Canada and the impact that in, uh, the governments of Canada, not just uh, federal, but provincial as well, and municipal, um, and uh, society's various institutions, including churches, uh, educational institutions, etc., have had upon the lives of Indigenous people is that it has undermined virtually every single component of Indigenous culture, Indigenous life, and uh, denigrated Indigenous people in a very systematic, uh, organized, and open way. It's, it's not like you look at Canadian history and you have trouble finding examples of this oppression. Uh, it's very easy, as it is in the United States as well, because um, a whole series of legislation exists, uh, as well as a whole series of very public policies um, that... Um, are aimed at uh, denigrating Indigenous people and declaring that they are lesser beings, that they are inferior to um, white colonizers and uh, white settlers who come from European nations generally. Uh, and uh, they're part of a, a generally racist view that um, Sir John A. Macdonald best exemplified when he said that in, in Parliament, he said that uh, all Canadians should be of Aryan stock, and therefore they should be people who are of white ancestry. And uh, anybody who isn't is not welcome. That's why they had laws limiting uh, the immigration of people from India, South Asia, and uh, other parts of the world, uh, Africa, uh, that uh, were not seen to be fitting into that mold, that vision. The UN Declaration in its 46, uh, in its, its uh, various clauses, uh, talks about each and every one of the actions that governments have taken over the years to undermine Indigenous existence and force Indigenous people to assimilate and ultimately to uh, uh, be assimilated in such a way that their separate identity and their uniqueness and even their skin color would be uh, watered down would be eliminated so that they would look no different than the rest of Canada. And so when you look at uh, the clauses that talk about uh, education, for example, uh, and the right to education in their own culture, the right to education in their own language, uh, the uh, 
purpose of that, of course, would be to under to undermine uh, to address the undermining of um, the indigenous methods of educating their own children. Um, and every educational system has a very significant role in the life of every child growing up, including the reinforcement of their history, the reinforcement of their identity, the reinforcement of their heroes, reinforcement of their sense of being and uh, the validity of their, their lives and their people. And the fact that the residential schools in Canada deliberately undermine that, um, and it, as they did elsewhere too, it's not just uh, in uh, Canada, but in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, um, and other parts of the world, South America um, and Africa, the, the declaration really was uh, saying, stop that. Uh, and to the extent that you have stopped it, now you must take steps to help repair the damage that you've already done. And these are the things that you have to do. But most importantly, is you have to assist Indigenous people to recover their own sense of self. So it's not really saying to government, now you must give them back their identity, um, because that would be to continue the oppression almost, to continue the subjugation, to continue this relationship uh, based on the myths of superiority, inferiority. Um, but it is to say, indigenous people must now be allowed to do things uh, in accordance with their own way of doing things. And, and you now have to get out of the way. And they include things like the right to self-determination, the right to education, the right to uh, speak their language and have their language uh, reinstituted um, by their own leadership, by their own communities, but uh, to the extent that they need resources in order to be able to do that, um, the states who belong to the United Nations are obligated to assist them financially in order to accomplish that. So when we looked at what is it that the residential schools did, we, we quickly saw that Residential schools were just an example of part of this overall oppression of Indigenous people. Uh, and they were a significant tool in the oppressive nature of Canada's relationship with Indigenous people uh, because they essentially involved taking children away from parents for no other reason than they the government wanted them to be indoctrinated into a different culture and a different way of being. And they did that for seven, at least seven successive generations in Canada and therefore caused a significant amount of damage over that period of time, undermining not just the sense of identity that um, the survivors of those schools would have had, but also undermining their belief in themselves and their ability to function in Canadian society because the theory was that we will take them away from their people and then we will integrate them into Canadian society. Well, that integration never occurred because of racism. You can't take children away from their families saying that we are taking you away from an inferior people and we're going to put you into this other place where you will be the equal. But on the other hand, you've just told those people in that other place that these are not equal people to you. These are inferior people to you. Public schools did that too. Public schools taught that indigenous people were inferior. And so the, the purpose of the, 
UN declaration was to say, now we have to try to find ways of undoing all of that within the public sector, but also for indigenous people to assist them to revive themselves. And, and I like to say that we talk about reconciliation as the a creation of a relationship of mutual respect. But we first of all have to have a process by which indigenous people can gain their self-respect. And the UN declaration is a perfect example of that. It is the means by which indigenous people can first of all gain their self-respect so that they can, in fact, establish a relationship with mutual respect. And uh, we're not there yet. We're not going to be there for a long time. We put it down as a framework for reconciliation because what we said is everybody needs to familiarize themselves with what's in that document. And they need to read it. They need to understand it. And then they need to work with indigenous people to begin to develop that relationship of mutual respect, uh, which involves assisting them to regain their self-respect, uh, or at least being patient enough to wait for that to happen. Um, and um, so we saw the UN Declaration as a very important tool in that process. And we, uh, we made uh, significant statements about that. There's a whole section in the TRC final report, which talks about um, the, the history of the UN Declaration, but more importantly, the purpose of it, and that it is a, a document that every institution in Canada, not just governments, but all institutions, including um, the educational system, um, universities, uh, the economic system, the major corporations, um, religious organizations, the churches should all utilize when it comes to how they deal with and talk about Indigenous people. So the UN Declaration is probably the most important document uh, in the conversation going forward when it comes to uh, Indigenous people finding a, a way to gain their sense of self as well as being able to deal with uh, Canadian authorities at many different levels uh, on an equal footing. And I think, you know, what's what's really important about all of this that both of you have mentioned that the whole point of UNDRIP is, is government get out of the way. <laughs> you know, Indigenous people will find their way forward however they want to do that, however it looks uh, for their own people in their own ways, what works for them. And uh, the correlation part of it is that not only are these rights recognized, but there's an, an obligation on states to provide the ways and the means. So it's not like just saying, oh, okay, go ahead, speak your own languages and, and be self-determining. It's also, there's a state obligation to provide the ways and means, especially given that the state controls uh, most Indigenous lands and territories. And I think that was a really important part of the TRC call to action. And that was also a recommendation in the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. They heard that over and over and over and over again from families and experts and people who testified and made submissions. So it's uh, it's not like it's a new idea. This is something that people have you know, been advancing for many years. I wonder, Brenda, if we could move on now to Bill C-15, because again, this is another piece of law and, and not everybody is 
you know, on Legis Info, looking at what what's going on. What is this bill? If you can give us an overview of Bill C-15 so that people understand, get a better sense of what it's doing and what it isn't doing. Because right now we know that it's in a committee, um, you know, at and it's also in pre-study at the Senate, I think. So you've got both the House and the Senate looking at this bill. But if you could just give us some background about Bill C-15 in a way that people would understand it. Well, I can try to uh, break the law down so that people can understand, but that might be a monumental task. Um, I think it's important to remember that Bill C-15 was not the federal government's idea, right? That Bill C-15 is a response to calls from Indigenous peoples and allies across the country to address the what many view as the harm that was done when Bill C-262 was killed in the Senate. And so we have uh, the Cree member of parliament, Romeo Saganesh, at the last sitting of the legislature, introducing Bill C-262, which was an act to implement the UN Declaration in Canada. And it, you know, made it through the House, it made it through most of the Senate. And, you know, Marie, you were fantastic and took heroic efforts trying to get it through. But um, unfortunately, not successful in getting uh, Bill C-262 passed into law. And so when that happened, Indigenous people jumped on uh, Trudeau and the Liberals and said, in your election platform, you have to commit to introducing legislation that's at least as strong as 262 and implement the UN Declaration in legislation. And after some lobbying and some, you know, advocacy work, it was included. And then, of course, the Trudeau government gets elected again. And uh, again, I think a lot of people advocating for the government and reminding them of this platform promise. And so eventually uh, the liberal government introduces legislation that is more or less identical to the legislation that Romeo Saganash introduced um, earlier and that uh, wasn't successful. So what did that legislation do? What does C-15 do? First, it really simply clarifies that the UN Declaration applies in Canada. While those of us who study international law and its application in Canada understand this rule, there are unfortunately many politicians and lawyers and even judges that don't fully understand the rules of how international law applies in Canada. So instead of trying to teach everyone international law, we have this um, provision in Bill C-15 that says that the UN Declaration applies in Canada. So we can use it now in Canada without having to convince people that, you know, it's law and that it applies. So uh, the first thing. The second thing is that it requires Canada to take action to ensure that all laws are consistent with the UN Declaration. So it sets a new minimum standard for how the government engages with Indigenous peoples, at least um, in, in the laws. And so again, Canada should be taking proactive steps. And again, sorry, in case it needs, um, I don't think I said that this is federal legislation. So it's only going to apply to the federal government. It's not going to apply to the provincial government's federal legislation applies to the federal government and federal bureaucracy. 
And so uh, the government is required to take steps to ensure that the laws of Canada are consistent, the federal laws are consistent with the UN Declaration. And then it requires Canada to develop and implement a national action plan. And the ideas of national action plan are really popular in international human rights law. It was one of the outcomes of the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples in, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014, we noted it was included in the calls to action. And the idea is a national action plan is a place where you work, where the government should work with Indigenous peoples across the country to figure out how are we going to implement the UN Declaration. We've noted it's big, it's complex, it contains lots of different rights. Um, and so in order to implement it, we need to sort of have a plan. How do we go about doing this? And in the plan, we should be working to ensure that it's not sort of pan-Indigenous, that we work with diff all the different First Nations, we work with uh, Métis, we work with all the different Inuit uh, organizations and nations to work to implement the UN Declaration and figure out how we can do so. And then there's two other parts that I think are really important. One is that it requires the government to report every year back to parliament what they're doing to implement, which is key because it's really hard to sometimes know what the government is doing. So by requiring the government to report, we get some transparency, we now get to see. And the other thing is it creates an option, an, an avenue for accountability, right? Because now members of parliament can question the government. Are they doing enough? Are they doing the national action plan correctly? Are they engaging Indigenous peoples appropriately, right? So we have that ability for transparency and accountability to see what the government is doing and to challenge them on whether it's enough. And then finally, and significantly, the Act clarifies that by implementing the UN Declaration, we cannot, um, it, it's not taking away from any of the existing rights. And uh, this idea is also contained in the UN Declaration. Um, so the idea is we're always building up, right? We're raising the minimum standards. So the UN Declaration can't be used to lower or undermine any rights. It's meant to raise the threshold. So uh, the Bill C-15 clarifies that implementing the UN Declaration is not to undermine or abrogate from any of the existing rights that Indigenous peoples have in Canada. Well, that's a, a really good overview because in terms of, you know, relatively speaking for different pieces of legislation, it's a relatively small piece of, of legislation, um, but it has also engendered a, a wide variety of responses, but primarily in different Indigenous communities. And I'm wondering, Murray, if you can, you can talk about this a little bit because obviously Indigenous peoples don't trust any government. Um, and there's a lot of his historical reasons and current reasons why that's the case. And there's a wide range of opinions. Some people support it. Some don't support it. Some are saying, you know, um, we'd rather have this legislation than no legislation. Some are uh, asking for amendments. Um, can you share with us your views on Bill C-15 uh, and, and its potential here in Canada? The legislation itself is uh, is pretty straightforward, actually. And uh, I've talked to people, particularly some of the leaders in Alberta, 
about why they feel so opposed to uh, the legislation and they're encouraging uh, legislators to oppose it and to vote it down and not to pass it into law. And when I asked them why, um, I, I don't quite understand their their logic or what it is that they hope to achieve. Uh, so I, I, I can't really comment upon motivation. I can only say that it certainly does appear to me that there's a, a high level of distrust, um, not perhaps to this government alone, the liberal administration, but perhaps to all governments at the federal level, uh, and that they think there's some hidden agenda here that <clears throat> the governments are trying to achieve by passing this law. Um, but it's interesting to me that uh, this law is not that much different from the uh, uh, legislation that Romeo Saganash introduced uh, in the last session, uh, Bill 262. Uh, his bill essentially called for the same thing, a recognition of the uh, existence of the UN Declaration uh, and also a, um, an undertaking by Canada to review all of its legislation and to report back uh, to the Senate and to the House on uh, the, that analysis. And, and at that time, it enjoyed widespread support among Indigenous leaders. And, and now that this has become a government bill, um, it's guaranteed passage in the Senate if they can get two uh, other bills other than um, the pandemic and financial legislation that they're so uh, focused on right now. Um, but um, because it's a government bill, uh, the government can, in fact, uh, bring it to a vote much more readily than could have been done with a private member's bill, as uh, Saganash's bill was. Um, and... and and the opposition in the Senate can't uh, stop it from coming to a vote as they did with Saganash's bill. And so we are uh, looking at a, a very, uh, very clear likelihood that this could become the law of the country uh, and implement and, and do what uh, uh, Brenda has pointed out that the law would have the impact of doing. Um, but for some reason now, some of the leaders have spoken out against it. Um, some have spoken out against it uh, in saying that they weren't consulted in uh, the drafting of the legislation or the, the bill itself. Um, but the consultation process of the of Bill 262 was quite thorough, and the inclusion of Indigenous leaders in promoting the bill and advancing the bill through the House and through the Senate was quite extensive. And Indigenous leaders at that time, including some of the ones who are now speaking against the bill, um, were very clear, I thought. Uh, and yet uh, now they're complaining that the bill is, uh, has been introduced without their support or without their consultation. Um, so I really fail to understand why they're opposed to it. And uh, the impact of the bill would be no different than Bill 262. Uh, Romeo Saganash's bill would have had. Uh, it's got a tighter timeline. I understand that in the committee in the House, uh, they reduced the three-year review period to a two-year review period, uh, so that now it's a tighter reporting uh, reporting timeline. Um, but at the same time, the government will still be obligated by this legislation to um, do the analysis and to report back. And uh, one of the things I've always recommended to Indigenous leaders is 
if you don't trust the government to do the analysis properly, then do your own analysis and seek funding in order to do that. And I'm sure that the, the funding would be there. After all, if they're going to include you in the analysis process, which they, the bill commits the government to do, then they, the government should have no difficulty in saying to you that you have the right to, to have your own independent analysis done as well. Uh, so I, I don't really understand the opposition. I, I think the legislation is is a, a very important step. It is uh, it's a very clear response to our uh, call to action, uh, call to action 44, uh, which called upon the government to develop that national action plan. Um, the one criticism which I joined the, the, the indigenous leaders on is that this should have been done a long time ago. Um, there is no explanation as to why this wasn't done back in 2016 or 2017. Uh, it should have been, it could have been done much earlier, and we wouldn't be at this stage now, uh, six years after the TRC, and um, nine years after the government um, accepted the UN declaration, um, that we're just now debating the question of whether the government should do the analysis of its own legislation. Um, and and I can tell you just from uh, the analysis that I did when I was in the Senate and, and my staff did some work for me, also with the assistance of the Library of Parliament, um, that there are dozens and dozens of federal laws that are potentially in conflict with the principles contained in the UN Declaration and uh, will need to be amended or clarified in order to ensure that the legislation, um, the law or the policy that's currently in existence, whether it's the Indian Act or some other legislation, um, is uh, amended to bring it into compliance with the principles and the provisions of the UN Declaration. So uh, this is work that we should not delay and to defeat this bill means that we're just going to delay it further. And an entire generation of people are going to be um, waiting as they've waited to this point in time, um, but continuing to wait for there to be some action taken on the part of the federal government. And, and that isn't right. That just isn't right. And those who are speaking out against it uh, don't like the liberal government. They don't like governments at the federal level at all. They don't want to have a relationship with the federal government. I can understand all of that. But at the same time, um, so far, they have no choice but to live under federal law. And we need those laws to be uh, appropriately amended to bring it in compliance with the principles that they themselves should be prepared to support. I've, I've actually heard some leaders speak out against the UN Declaration, and that I absolutely don't understand. I just don't understand why they would speak out against the UN Declaration. But yeah, there are some leaders out there who just don't have an understanding whatsoever. With social media, it gives you access to much more information. We can share information with each other. But then there's also so much on social media that you don't know what's a, a legal analysis, what's a political analysis, what's a personal opinion. And there's a lot of confusion. So there are also some that are advancing, well, don't implement UNDRIP, implement one of the earlier drafts from a long time ago, um, which really, you know, 
cast some confusion around what Canada could or couldn't do and what state obligations are. And, and I believe, Brenda or Murray, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the obligation of states when they ratify a treaty or a, you know, a declaration or a convention or any of those things is to then take steps to implement it into, into law in their own, in their own states. Is that I have that right. Are you talking about an international treaty or an international? Yeah, like any of these things, like the obligation on Canada now is to take steps to implement this. Yeah. Well, Brenda probably has a far better understanding of the impact (laughs) of uh, UN documents than I do. Uh, We had, we took a glance at that when Romeo's bill came to us as to a declaration has the same legal standing as a, Mm -hmm. uh, as a covenant or same legal standing as a, uh, convention. So, and and we we came to the conclusion that uh, a declaration like this does not necessarily have the same impact as a as a, a UN convention, for example, um, which is the equivalent of a treaty. But um, Brenda could probably better express an opinion on that. So I'm going to bail out of this one and give it back to her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now here's my real challenge is can I take the technical rules on international law and help uh, clarify things? It's, um, it's really difficult. I think we want to, you know, try to understand Canada's obligations and what they could do. And Canada, of course, could pass legislation based on um, the provisions that were in earlier drafts of the UN declaration, right? Of course, you can, Canada can pass, like draft any legislation. But I think the point that you're raising, Pam, I think, is that doing so would not necessarily fulfill Canada's obligations under the UN Declaration and um, Canada's need to fulfill all of its human rights obligations as a member in good standing of the United Nations. The other point, I think, in relation to this, should we revert back to earlier provisions? It's a challenging one because it adds to the perception that along the way, there were unacceptable compromises made in the negotiations. And that somehow we would be better off in Canada moving away from a document that now is accepted to have um, consensus around the world as to the minimum basic human rights of Indigenous peoples to something that was drafted in the 80s or 90s. And, you know, I know there's a lot of like there's a couple of uh, lawyers and legal academics out there who've done some clause to clause comparisons and can say, You know, this phrase doesn't exist anymore. This phrase isn't there. But I don't necessarily think that means that that idea isn't encapsulated in the declaration, right? The declaration is still really broadly speaking. And so maybe there's less reference to water specifically. But that doesn't mean that when we talk about lands, territories and resources, that it doesn't include protection over waters and rights to water, for example, or other areas. So I also just want to caution us to not accept an interpretation of the current Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as not encapsulating some of those other ideas. I think we need to think that over the course of time, 
We streamlined the text. We tried to clarify. We reorganized some of the um, provisions because they weren't necessarily numbered in a way that made a lot of sense. Like not all the provisions on different topics were chunked together. And so I think I would caution people who are asking for Canada to work to implement previous drafts. I would suggest that what might be... um, a stronger argument is to say that, you know, words that may not be included, that those ideas are still there. And I think there's a lot of instances where that exists. And so I don't want to promote ideas of saying that the UN Declaration doesn't protect water, for example, or whatever provisions you want to speak to. Um, I would say they're included under resources. There's uh, references or if sea ice isn't referenced enough in these de- um, in the in the final declaration that was passed, right? That those are still protected as part of our resources. Secondly, the ideas of what applies in Canada. Um, it's really interesting to see what the courts have been doing over time. We see a shift in the Supreme Court of Canada away from technical rules of trying to figure out, you know, is it a customary international law? Is it a human rights treaty? Or is it a declaration? Has Canada passed, if it's a treaty, has Canada passed implementing legislation? And what the court, the Supreme Court, at least in several cases, seems to be far more concerned about what are the normative uh, principles that are contained in international law? What are those values and principles and um, norms in international human rights law that Canada should be upholding domestically. And rather than get into all of these nitty gritty rules and fights over how does it apply, let's look at the rights and think about how we can better uphold human rights in Canada. And I think that's really important because for a long time, the Canadian government's attempt to escape responsibility under the UN Declaration was to say it's only a declaration. But as it's really clear from the United Nations and the opinions coming out of the Office of Legal Affairs at the UN that declarations do contain obligations that we expect states to uphold. And again, Canada, as a member of the UN, has to uphold its human rights obligations, including those in the UN Declaration. And so I think the only final point I would throw in here is that it's fair to think that, um, or to take the approach that the UN Declaration on its own is not directly enforceable in courts, right? So it's still law, it still contains obligations, but you can't go to a Canadian court with your only claim being a violation of an article. But what has been really helpful is using the UN Declaration to help interpret obligations in Canadian law and to interpret Canadian legislation, for example. These are really important points for for people to understand, even for me. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't with the different drafts. You know, I've I've learned from people like the Honorable Graydon Nicholas and Romeo Saganash and Ellen Gabriel and other people who were involved in different parts of this. So I, I think that's important. And I'm wondering if like for the time that we have left, 
Um, I've been gathering some of the most common questions on social media that grassroots people have. So not the people that are giving the analysis, but people who are just asking legitimate questions. And the first one, I think you might already have answered, but it's, does Bill C-15 make UNDRIP law in Canada? The straightforward answer is no. Uh, but the more complicated answer is it does give it legal standing. And uh, that's a sort of a different issue. Mm-hmm. So that means that you, in, in a court case, for example, or in uh, in terms of interpreting legislation, uh, it it uh, would have an impact in terms of how you interpret uh, provisions within the treaties, within a, uh, a land claim, or within a land claims agreement, or within uh, legislation as it now exists, uh, because. Canada has, by signing on to the Declaration, uh, committed itself to uh, adopting that principle as part of its uh, work going forward. So it couldn't renege on that commitment. Um, So, uh, but it doesn't mean that the Declaration itself uh, in its entirety um, would become the law of Canada. Uh, And that's one of the fallacies that's been shoved out there by opponents to say that uh, suddenly we have this whole area of other countries interfering in our domestic law, and in reality, that's not the case. We mustn't forget that Canada willingly signed on to the Declaration, and therefore Canada made the decision to uh, accept the principles within the Declaration. And therefore, uh, there has to be some legal consequence for that. And the legal consequence is that now, when they're confronted by a claim um, that uh, can be interpreted one way or another, the UN Declaration can be utilized by the courts or by lawyers to interpret that claim or those those issues um, in a way that is consistent with the UN Declaration. You know, I just wanted to sort of um, jump in and uh, continue with what you were saying. I always think of it in relation to enforceability, right? So does it make under law in Canada? Well, it depends what you mean by law. Again, after Bill C-15, I still don't think you can go to court and sue the government with your only basis being a violation of an article of the UN Declaration. But that doesn't mean now that Canada gets to continue on with everything the way it is. I think, as, as Marie already said, it has to change Canada has to uphold these standards. And further, for those who are questioning taking international law and applying them in Canada, let's remember this is international human rights law. It's atrocious to me that there are people out there who would argue that a declaration that sets out the human rights of Indigenous peoples is somehow contrary to Canadian morals and values. Like, That is quite the statement. If you're saying we don't want to take this foreign law of international human rights law and use that in Canada, you are explicitly saying you're against human rights of Indigenous peoples in Canada. Like that needs to, I think, be um, really hit home. There's reasons why I get why um, Indigenous leaders are suggesting Bill C-15, maybe they think it isn't the right mechanism or they express concern, but at least from those coming from certain corners that are saying we don't want international law um, coming in, that it's somehow foreign and, you know, opposite, like they're opposing human rights. 
and and ultimately it's this document was created by indigenous peoples advocated spent decades lobbying with other countries to get them to support it and then since 2007 i know i can speak to personally i have pled undrip in every single submission you know, whether at the United Nations, the Inter-American Commission here in Canada, at the National Inquiry. I mean, there's never been a time where I haven't said this is this is the minimum standard for Indigenous peoples. And and I, I've seen I haven't seen where that's not the case, where Indigenous peoples have not been advocating that UNDRIP is the minimum standard. So I think that's all of that is important information, which kind of leads to the second question I get on social media uh, a concern raised by some grassroots saying, I've heard that UNDRIP will extinguish or negatively impact Indigenous um, laws, governing practices and treaties. Now, I know the answer to this, but I think it's really important to set the record straight about whether UNDRIP and C-15 somehow negatively impacts or extinguishes Indigenous rights in any way. No. <laughs> Okay, I mean, you got to keep the answer simple because that's the answer. It does not. It cannot and it could not and it does not. And I just, I don't think we need a more authoritative source than Murray to say that. But just if people are wondering, that's what it says in Bill C-15. And that's what it says in the UN Declaration, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if, right, if we need to read it, read Section 2.2 of Bill C-15 and Article 45, right? So Article 45 of the Declaration says, nothing in this declaration may be construed as diminishing or extinguishing the rights Indigenous peoples have now or may acquire in the future, right? So even if we sort of wonder whether C-15 says it, the UN Declaration says it. So implementing the UN Declaration can't then extinguish anything that's already recognized. Again, it's meant to raise us up. So that that's important. I like those straightforward yes or no answers with the explanation. And you know, it's this, it's, it's you, the terminology is non-abrogation or derogation, but it just means not negatively impact our rights in both documents. The other question here is a little bit more complicated. Does anything in Bill C-15 automa automatically make UNDRIP subject to Canada's constitution. And I think this question comes from um, comments made by different ministers where originally they were saying we will implement UNDRIP unconditionally, and then they added unconditionally, except in accordance with section 35 of the constitution. Oh, 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 oh wait, can I, can I jump in here? Yes, please. And, and I'm sorry, he's no, probably far more authoritative, but this is sort of one of my favorite questions and maybe it's the constitutional law professor in me. But we have to remember that the constitution in Canada contains, I mean, there's lots to it, but I'll talk about three main parts. The first one is the part of the constitution that says, um, you know, the overarching principle that all laws in Canada have to be um, constitutional, right? That the governments have to act in accordance with the constitution. So that's our overarching principle. And then the constitution gives sort of three main ways that the governments have to act in order to be constitutional. The first is the government has to have the um, jurisdiction over that subject matter granted to them in the constitution. So the constitution has a list of subject matters that only the federal government can legislate. 
the Constitution also has a list of subject matters that only the provinces can legislate. And so when we talk about um, implementing the UN Declaration, yes, government actions have to be, and including actions to implement the UN Declaration, have to be in line with the Constitution in that there are parts that may require the provinces to act and some that will require the provincial or the federal government to act. When Canada endorsed the UN Declaration without qualification, they said that they were going to endorse the the UN Declaration in accordance with the Constitution. And that's the phrase Canada uses every time they support a UN human rights treaty recognizing that while Canada engages in international human rights negotiations, that when we go to implement it at home, they'll have to work with the provinces. The Constitution also inc- requires the government in order to be constitution to, uh, for government action to be constitutional. It has to uh, be in line with all the charter rights. And the third area that the Constitution also says is order for government action to be constitutional it has to uh, be in line with Aboriginal and treaty rights. So I think it's really important that we remember all three of those different areas. So just because implementing the UN Declaration has to be in accordance with the Constitution does not mean that um, the implementation of section of the UN Declaration has to fall under that really terrible interpretation of section 35 by the courts. I think actually what it could do is I think implementing the UN Declaration in Canada means we have to throw out that test in Vanderpeet and in Sparrow and reconsider what we think as being those Aboriginal and treaty rights that are recognized and affirmed in the Constitution. I agree with all of that. I think that that the the impact of the uh, the, um, UN Declaration on Section 35 is not one that's been widely discussed. Uh, and, and, but my, my view of it is that I think that the adoption of the, uh, the declaration and the revision necessary in order to implement the um, provisions within the, the, the declaration itself uh, and the interpretation that now courts are being called upon to give to the the, the rights of Indigenous peoples um, under Section 35 will be greatly influenced by the UN Declaration, so that they themselves will probably look relook at uh, all of those earlier decisions that they have gone uh, that they have given, including probably those decisions that go back to the 19th century, uh, and essentially say those those cases are no longer valid law. And I just want to point out that in relation to the Charter, the Supreme Court has reconsidered um, areas that they had already decided. And they said enough things have changed in the world and the landscape that we have to reconsider our earlier decision. And they came to a new idea. This is in relation to the prostitution um, criminal code provisions and in relation to medical assistance in death. The Supreme Court of Canada, when looking at charter rights, said the landscape has changed in the last 10, 15 years. We're going to reconsider this issue. And so I think the UN Declaration and implementing it means we have to reconsider 
the scope of Section 35. And I think throw out Vanderpeet, probably throw out a lot of Sparrow. And really, like, I think this is our opportunity to get back to what the real intention of Section 35 was, is recognizing the inherent rights of Indigenous people, self-determination, self-government, Indigenous institutions. And also the original intention of the treaties from the perspective yes. of Indigenous people, because that's been one of the, <clears throat> the negative impacts, <clears throat> excuse me, of court interpretation of the treaties has always been that there is a an ongoing right of the government of Canada to ignore or to interpret its own obligations under the treaties. And I think now, uh, through a combination of Section 35 and the UN Declaration, the enforceability and the authority and the power of the treaties will become enhanced. That's my view. Well, that's, you know, really important for people to understand because Canada should have, once Section 35 was enacted, gone through a process to review all of its own laws at the federal and provincial level and say, hey, our, our laws jive with this. And clearly they haven't. They've chosen to use litigation and we've ended up with some problematic cases. And it doesn't look like there's anything that'll shift those problematic cases except for the infusion of something like UNDRIP, which, you know... Ch changes the dynamic and and potentially maybe they will reconsider some of those cases. So um, as we come to a close, two really important questions, and I know you've already answered it, but we kind of like these straightforward um, question and answers is one, if this bill passes, does it apply to the provinces and territories? And do they have an obligation to enact similar legislation like BC, for example? Uh, a short answer to that is uh, I, I don't think it automatically applies. I think it's a process of negotiation as with any um, international commitment that Canada makes and they wish the provinces to buy into, so to speak. Uh, I think there is an obligation there. Canada has, a, has a, an additional power, though, and that is that it has legal jurisdiction over Indians and lands reserved for Indians. So it does have legal jurisdiction under 9124 of the Constitution Act of 1867 now. So it could theoretically um, do a significant amount of legislation in that area that would have and could have an impact upon provincial authority in the areas of education, child welfare, and uh, uh, et cetera. But uh, I think that uh, the more likely course is going to be now that for discussions on the impact of the declaration, there's going to probably be uh, some federal provincial uh, dialogue that will be opened up. By yeah, and I and I just uh, coming back to a little bit more technical um, international law, Canadian constitutional law issues, I think um, it may also be helpful to remind Canada that under international law, Canada is responsible to uphold all of their human rights obligation, regardless of their domestic constitutional arrangements. So Canada is responsible to ensure that it's upholding the rights in the UN Declaration, and they owe that obligation to the international world. And so Canada can't go back to the international world and say, oh, we can't implement that part because it falls to the provinces. Doesn't matter. So Canada, I think, is really obligated from that international side to implement and get the provinces on board. And so hopefully by passing C-15, it is another nudge for the federal government to encourage and work with the provinces to make sure that it is fully implemented in Canada. 
And I'd also like to make another point here before we leave the topic, and that is that one of the other calls to action that we put forward was for the federal government to uh, negotiate and sign on to a covenant of reconciliation with the uh, Indigenous peoples of Canada. The reason for that was to commit this government, regardless of which political party is in power, to an ongoing process so that uh, if the Conservatives get into power, the Bloc Quebecois or the NDP, that they just can't ignore what's been going on. They can't ignore their commitment internationally uh, or change it, uh, that the commitments that have been made in the past will continue to be honoured. And the covenant of reconciliation that we talked about was also intended to include um, those important institutions of Canada, such as the churches. But more importantly, it was really intended to commit the governments of this country to um, stay, stay the course when it came to the way that we are dealing with Indigenous issues, and particularly those that are covered by the UN Declaration. Now, that's a super important point because I think it was called Action Number 45, talked about this royal proclamation and covenant of reconciliation that repudiates those concepts that a lot of Indigenous people are talking about, like the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius. But an essential part of that is adopting UNDRIP. So in 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 you know every aspect of the calls to action, you see UNDRIP as this central mechanism for reconciliation repeated again in the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. And I think that's um, when Canada committed to implement all of the calls to action, that was one of the things that Indigenous people said, yeah, and the call to action on UNDRIP uh, would be exceptionally important. I guess my, my last question is really just what do you think? What is the likelihood that this bill can pass before the House rises or there's a surprise election or, I mean, is, is there a real shot this time that this will pass? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if uh, Brenda feels like she's a better prognosticator than I am, but uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, on this one, uh, we're all on very thin ice. I, I, it's hard to know when the government's likely going to call an election. Uh, we hear, uh, uh, statements that it's likely going to be this year sometime. Uh, as long as the pandemic's with us, I don't think they're likely to go to, uh, go to the polls easily, but at the same time, uh, that's probably going to be the driving force behind it. Uh, but uh, the, the reality is that the uh, because it's a government bill, uh, there's a better chance of it passing than uh, as a private member's bill. And if the government saw, uh, uh, felt itself committed to ensuring that this was enacted, that they could make it law. Yeah, I have no ability to predict. But what I will say is that um, when I was called to testify before the um, Parliamentary Standing Committee for Bill C-262, I had no kids and I now have a two and a half year old. And it really worries me that if we miss this opportunity, we might not get another one or who knows when it'll be. And like, it's just like this work has been the lifetime, like just getting legislation passed has been like my daughter's lifetime. Right. And I think um, if, if this isn't the right bill, then, you know, maybe we don't proceed. But 
I don't see a lot of downsides to this bill. And I think um, I would just hate to lose an opportunity to start moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I hope, I hope it goes through um, unless I start to see more substantive reasons against, against supporting the bill. I do see that there is some strong um, positives that can come from it. And I just, I don't know more opportunities, right? So I kind of like, this is the one we have right now. And so, um, yeah, who knows though? It's all about, and I've heard you say before, Brenda and you too, Marie, it's all about tools. All the different kinds of tools we have at our disposal to use and advance our collective rights. And I, I wanna thank you both, um, Walalan, Marcy, McGuit for taking the time to have this conversation, you know, address it in the, in the broader level, but also take the time to answer all of the grassroots questions that are out there on social media, because people really want to know. They care about your uh, opinions. And the last person I talked to about this was Ellen Gabriel. And she just reminded everybody uh, that it's important for us to be able to have these conversations openly and in a respectful way and in one that that's based on understanding and, and according to our traditional values where we give everyone a voice and hear what people have to say and that we're all really working in the best interests of our people. And it's one of the reasons why we all, myself included, fought so hard for UNDRIP, fought so hard for it to be implemented here in Canada. And hopefully that'll be the case. Um, I really appreciate all the work that you've done and for taking the time to help educate and provide your own advice and guidance on this. So thank you very much to both of you. Well, I just uh, thank you and, and uh, want to close by saying this, that I love Ellen Gabriel. I remember being at a conference with her one time in which she was asked a question about whether Indigenous people have always been opposed to assimilation. And she said, no, our original intent when you came here was to assimilate you. And <laughs> I think that's uh, still part and parcel of what this dialogue has to be about. We have to find a way to meet together. I have no follow-up to that other than thank you so much for inviting me here today and having the opportunity to sit with both of you. And thank you for all the work you do, Pam, and uh, for this uh, for this podcast. Well, thank you both. And thanks to all the listeners or viewers for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast and taking the time to learn more and have some of your questions answered about both UNDRIP and Bill C-15 from two of the most amazing legal experts and human beings I have ever known. And I'll post links to everything, to UNDRIP, C-15, um, Professor Gunn's handbook on understanding UNDRIP, um, some of the commentary that's been out there. And you can check out my website at pampalmeter.com where you can access all of it. And don't forget to support this podcast. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliad. Well,